Ladies and gentlemen, welcome Shamil Idris. Thank you. Thank you so much, Tamara. That was a very overly generous uh, introduction. Thank you, President Kreis, um, Tamara, Rosemary Reynolds, everyone at the, the Wong Center, the Global Ambassador students who shepherded me around today and made sure I didn't get lost. I'm really so very honored to be here. Your, your mission statement for this institution, uh, I kind of want to poach it for our organization. It's beautiful to educate students for lives of thoughtful inquiry, service, leadership, and care for other people, for their communities, and for the earth. It's really very powerful, and ever since I heard from this institution that you were gonna do me this honor of inviting me to speak here today, every interaction I've had with every person at this institution has made clear that those aren't just words on your website. It's really extraordinary. I don't think I've been treated this well uh, anywhere that, that I've spoken, and I don't think I deserve it. And if I give a horrible talk now, it's all up to me because you've pampered me, I slept well, I had a good flight. Um, I also wanna acknowledge the family of Chris Stevens. Uh, his sister Anne and her husband Peter, his cousin Becca, who I just met today. Uh, as was referenced by Tamara, I, I got to know Anne. Um, some of you might have heard before it was referenced in my introduction that one of the things that was done to honor Chris's legacy was the establishment of the J. Christopher Stevens Virtual Exchange Initiative, uh, run by the Aspen Institute and supported by the US government, several Arab governments, and private sector leaders, including the Bezos Foundation right near here in Seattle. That initiative uh, was launched and uh, announced by President Obama personally as an effort to uh, increase, uh, drive a larger increase than ever in history between, uh, of cross-cultural education and exchange between the US and the Arab world. And it simply wouldn't have happened without uh, Anne's leadership. So in between chairing her medical department pursuing a cure for lupus, literally. She also has been leading this effort to build bridges between the US and the Arab world in the name of her brother, and I'm very honored to, to know her, and thank you very much, Anne. So Anne, Anne also makes fun of me for being verbose, so the fact that she has to sit here and listen to me for 40 minutes is really great. I'm thrilled about that. Um, I run Search for Common Ground, an international peace-building organization that I'll tell you a little bit about in a minute, but I want to tell you about its, its founding because I think it's relevant some of the times we're in today. My predecessor as president of Search for Common Ground uh, was John Marks, the founder of the organization. And John was an uh, American Foreign Service officer during the Vietnam War. And he quit the Foreign Service in protest to the war, and he joined the staff of Senator Case, who wrote the legislation that cut the funding to the war, which is as you know, how the war ended. John then went on to write a best-selling expose of the CIA, which made him very unpopular with the US government, but increased his credentials in the whole sort of fight the power, 60s and 70s era, 70s era movement. Uh, and then he had an epiphany in the late 70s that as much recognition and encouragement as he was getting uh, for the work that he was doing, it, it didn't make him feel whole he realized that he was spending all of his time railing against the existing system rather than building a new system. And that was the fundamental insight that led to the establishment of my organization, Search for Common Ground. Now, as I worked for Search for Common Ground over the recent decades, I came across more and more people, colleagues of mine at the organization, who had made similar choices to John, uh, some of them in incredibly dramatic circumstances. Uh, a young man in Liberia who was forced to watch his father killed in front of him who made the difficult decision to reach out and dedicate his life to peace building after that. The Hutu and Tutsi journalists in Burundi who risked their lives to establish the first multi-ethnic radio studio in the Great Lakes region of Africa, right after radio had been used so effectively in neighboring Rwanda to fuel and drive genocide. The Macedonian woman who was rejected by her family for marrying an ethnic Albanian who went on to help craft and establish the first inter-ethnic bilingual kindergartens in Macedonia so that ethnic Macedonians and ethnic Albanians might actually learn one another's languages and establish friendships at the earliest age rather than starting immediately in their lives speaking different languages, following different media. Just last year, I met a conservative imam in northeast in Hosema, Morocco, a hotbed of recruitment to ISIS. He had taken uh, the steps to, to meet a, a Christian pastor on an interfaith uh, meeting day and uh, came back to his home to find that he uh, had gotten death threats on his Facebook page. 
and it scared him. And he really went into a little bit of a, 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 a you know, pondering, what should I do here? And he decided that rather than run away or shrink, he was going to uh, double down on his outreach. They eventually caught the person who threatened him. And this man reached out, this imam, young imam, conservative imam, reached out to have a conversation with him, uh, forgave him, and had a really profound impact on the person who had threatened him. And when asked about it, the imam said, you know, at the end of the day, all he really needed was a conversation, somebody to listen to him. Just this year, a couple months ago, a Christian colleague of mine who runs our program in the Central African Republic um, did something extraordinary. He, he developed enough trust uh, between the uh, Salaka and Anti-Balaka, the, the, the mainly Christian and Muslim uh, uh, militant groups facing off against one another who had been committing atrocities against one another. He built enough trust that he was able to shuttle back and forth between them and broker the first meeting of the leadership by convincing them that they would have his word, that he would ensure that neither party would bring weapons to the, to the, to the meeting. Um, just a couple weeks after that, he told me he got a message from the president of the country that the president had learned uh, that his own cousin, the president's cousin, had been so inspired by this guy that he had interacted with, our, our staffer, Thomas Paul, uh, that he had been convinced after this training to put down his weapons. Um, and the president wants to meet Thomas Paul directly to thank him for this. Really powerful people. So I meet people like this, and it's my job to work with people like this, which is the greatest privilege in the world. So if I sound at all cocky or overly boastful about what our organization is doing, I'm not doing any of it. I have the privilege to stand here in front of you. Um, but you should know that behind that are over 600 people doing extraordinary work in some of the most difficult places in the world, and it's having a true impact. Now, what Search does essentially is we provide a place for people like that to stand. Now, as for me, I was confronted early in life with much less dramatic challenges, but they were profound in my own young life anyway. My uh, mother was born in Turkey and my father in Syria. I was born in Connecticut, because they, in New Jersey rather, and we moved to Connecticut when I was seven years old because they wanted to do everything they could to get my brother and I to the best possible public school system. That was the number one thing for them as parents. And yet we would go every summer to visit my mother's family in Turkey, um, all living in one big compound in a rev relatively poor part of, of Turkey. Um, my first summer jobs were with the public interest research groups, the door-to-door -door environmental consumer protection, get doors slammed in your face, sometimes have people give some money or sign. Um, and I made good friends there, but they were hugely anti-corporate. The, the culture within that organization was that corporations were evil, they were the enemy. And yet the parents of some of my best friends in the relatively privileged place that my parents had, had settled us were the executives of major corporations. And they were wonderful people, kind to us, generous and charitable. So all of these experiences for me made it very difficult for me to accept pure black and white you know, good and evil interpretations of any community. I had established, you know, relationships of real trust and respect across a lot of these dividing lines, sometimes between communities that didn't think so highly of each other. Um, and so I was very basically at a very, I think, fundamental level drawn to Search's mission as a result. In the 1980s, when Search for Common Ground was established in 1982, the purview, really, peace building was the purview almost entirely of governments working through diplomats. Um, and the Every once in a while, the historic great figure, the Martin Luther King, Mandela, Gandhi figure who might lead a mass movement. But the role of citizen groups and non-governmental organizations in this space was really not thought of very seriously. Um, there were a handful of organizations that mainly were pulling from the field of dispute resolution. You could go in and mediate a dispute or help solve a particular problem. But the notion of actually trying to work with communities to shift the way societies deal with difference to shift the way they deal with inevitable conflicts. That really was, was a field that was nascent at that time. And the more that I worked with the organization and I got to meet some of the people that I just talked to you about, the more that I realized that this actually is the number one issue in the world. Our inability or unwillingness to deal constructively with our differences, with our conflicts, is blocking progress on everything else. What is undeniable today is that the big issues that we have to solve 
whether it's nuclear nonproliferation or climate change, whether it's fighting poverty, whether it's having financial regulatory regimes so that a day trader 10,000 miles away can't do something that melts down the whole global economy. All of those issues require cooperation, multilateral cooperation, cooperation across cultures, public-private sector cooperation. They simply cannot be handled by individual countries working unilaterally. The, it, it, they, not, that's not a philosophical statement. It used to be seen as a philosophical statement. It's now a statement of absolute fact. Now, today, Search for Common Ground has evolved, as has the broader field of citizen-led peacebuilding. Search is now the, probably the largest dedicated peacebuilding organization in the world. We have offices in over 30 countries with a little over 600 staff. We make long-term commitments to conflicts. We develop local teams that themselves represent the dividing lines, whether they're ethnic, religious, racial, whatever they might be. And then we vest tremendous authority and try to support those teams to bring their best creative thinking to bridge the divides in those societies. And because of that approach, that very decentralized sort of innovative approach, um, we've had a wide variety of creative uh, approaches and tools for addressing conflict developed from all around the world. Um, we do some of the traditional conflict resolution work like mediation and facilitated dialogue, but we also produce hundreds of hours of soap opera programming and reality television. We use community theater as one of the most effective ways to bring communities together across their dividing lines, model some of the destructive behavior that's going on upstage, and use it to interact and start a conversation within the communities. Our teams around the world have not only been brave and courageous, but incredibly innovative and, and, and risky and audacious in, in the best possible way. Now, the title of tonight's talk is that conflict is inevitable, but violence is not. And I genuinely think that if you believe that violence is inevitable or that political polarization is inevitable and we'll never get away from it, it's probably because you and we have become much too steeped, overwhelmed, almost drowned in an adversarial approach to dealing with conflict, internationally and here domestically. In our view at Search for Common Ground, conflict is not a good or a bad thing. It's the natural existence of difference, and it's part of what makes the world interesting when those differences interact with one another. And as a result, conflict is at the root of the greatest breakthroughs, the best ideas. When you bring people together from very different perspectives and experiences and ideologies all working on the same problem, you get the best ideas. You get the biggest breakthroughs, right? Um, but conflict obviously is also at the root of polarization and in the worst cases of, of outright violence. And what we find when violence breaks out in communities is that every other measure of human progress goes to zero. Whether you're working on women's empowerment, whether you're working on anti-poverty work, whether you're expanding human rights, whatever it might be, everything else goes to zero once violence breaks out and sometimes goes to zero for more than a generation. Now, part of why I'm excited to be here is this institution clearly has a dedication and a sort of a kindred spirit approach to how to deal with difference. I've seen it in your classes today, the way people talk to one another. I've had minority students uh, report to me that since the, um, uh, you know, the tensions have really boiled over on a lot of other campuses around the country, this campus has done so much to facilitate conversation and dialogue, and they haven't ever felt even an inkling of discomfort. It's not to say that nobody here has, but it's really clear that this institution has made a real commitment. And one of the problems that I personally have right now with this whole field of peace building is that we're much too timid in asserting not only that peace building uh, is possible and ethical, but in fact, it's the most powerful way to deal with difference in the world. It generates the best solutions, the most durable and sustainable uh, answers to our biggest problems. Um, and for too long, peace building has had this sort of it's been kind of relegated to being on the fringe. It's sort of, it's hippie, it's fringy, it's crunchy. Um, uh, I think these things are still compliments in the Seattle-Tacoma area, but <laughs> in the Washington, D.C. cynical policy world and other policy centers, um, not so much. Insulting your hosts is not the first step of good peace building, by the way. <laughs> but I, just, um, I mean, too many people have come to believe that peace building is nice when you can afford it, but not really relevant in the real world. And as some of those examples I shared with you, the impact that even individuals have had in the most dire of conflict situations, communities on the verge of huge atrocities of genocide, uh, I think the opposite is actually true. 
you know, we had in the last year um, uh, both Iranian Foreign Minister Zarif and former Secretary of State Kerry uh, thank our nuclear experts group for, in the words of the Foreign Minister, paving the path to the nuclear agreement, and in the words of the Secretary of State, uh, providing some of the breakthrough ideas on the biggest sticking points of the negotiations. Uh, we had the chief um, a diplomat, the Undersecretary of State for African Affairs, uh, when we started our, our programming in Burundi in the 90s, credit those journalists I talked about with literally preventing genocide in that country. Um, I was in the plateau state of Nigeria last year where the governor uh, publicly in front of all the security services and community groups thanked our team there for essentially helping to establish the peace and then said it's now up to us to make sure that that peace holds. Um, we work with a mining company in East Africa that recently came to us and asked to extend our partnership. And so I flew over to meet their CEO and I said, well, what gives? That's great, but why? They had done an internal assessment and found that uh, their security budget had gone down 60% in the country where they have these three mines, but their security results had gone way up. Um, peace is not only possible, it is actually uh, beneficial in every way. It creates better security for all of us, more profits for the companies who uh, act ethically, uh, and it is the last, the furthest thing from fringe, especially in a world where all of the major problems require cooperation across dividing lines. Now, what we found is that people have come to accept that violent conflict is not only inevitable, but also that it is exploding all around us, that if you'll forgive my language, the world is going to hell. Right? And we see this and I hear this in the living rooms where I'm talking to people. Um, I want to just get our facts straight. Violent conflict on the whole is on the decline, massively on the decline since the end of World War II. It's at the lowest rate as it's been in, in centuries. Um, there has absolutely been an uptick, and even using the word uptick to talk about the horror of the Syrian war feels wrong. But the point is, nothing in the relatively small increase historically changes the trend line, which is hugely downward. I encourage you to go to ourworldindata.org and go to their war and peace section or any of the other development sections of, of that website with all the, the work that they've done there and the research that they've compiled. Um, the, the fact is that we made investments as a human race after World War II. We put in place institutions and approaches to try to prevent violent conflict from breaking out on the scale that it had broken out on multiple times in the 20th century. And those investments paid off. They paid off very clearly and substantially. At the same time as we have this overall trend of violence going down, seemingly intractable violent conflicts are ending all the time. In my own lifetime, we've seen the end of apartheid, the end of the four centuries of troubles in Ireland, the end of the wars in Sierra Leone and Liberia, the end of the war so far in Sri Lanka, if it holds. Um, we've seen a peace agreement in Colombia. We saw in 2015 uh, a peaceful election in the most populous country in Africa, which very few experts expected to be peaceful after the violence that the elections four years earlier had sparked. Um, the fact is many of these situations are not irreversible, but it's also true that all wars end. All wars end. And if we're going to focus on the inevitability of anything, I'm going to choose to focus on that rather than on the spurious notion that all wars must, that wars must begin. Now, the third reality today is that people have more power today. People like us have more power today to influence international stability than at any time in human history. And we see the negative sides of this very clearly, right? I mean, the U.S. has the most powerful military in the history of the world, and we are now nearly two decades into a war against uh, loosely networked individuals, stateless individuals. Um, those individuals are having a tremendous impact on global stability, clearly. But the corollary is just as true. A group of individuals mobilized can also have an incredibly stabilizing effect on the world. We know that the International Landmine Treaty started with a few activists on their laptops, you know, eventually organizing entire governments to get the landmine ban uh, um, signed. So the world, respectfully, in my view, is not going to hell. Um, but we are absolutely in crisis. We are in crisis. The institutions that were established and that were effective after World War II 
to deal with interstate conflict are struggling immensely to deal with intrastate conflict, the collapse of states, weak governance, and then all of the implications and the, and the follow-on effects of those collapses, particularly in the Middle East and North Africa over the last decade. The collapse of states which we've seen give rise to historic uh, refugee flows, which we've seen give rise to these stateless violent extremist and terrorist movements, which we've then seen give rise to far right-wing nationalist movements in seemingly stable uh, European states. Um, all of those developments from the collapse of, 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 of states, all of those developments uh, are very difficult for governments to deal with, much more difficult than mediating a potential conflict between two states or more than two states. Uh, they're not things that governments alone can, can handle. And when you add on to that some of the global factors that are also fueling instability, fear, and insecurity, you add on the effects of climate change, and make no mistake about it, when we visit our teams around the world, climate change is having a direct impact on conflict. That conflict that the governor of Plateau State in Nigeria helped, credited our team with helping to stabilize between farmers and herders, Christian and Muslim communities, different tribes, that is a direct result of climate change and the impact it's having on reduced arable land um, across the Sahel region of Africa. Climate change is one of those global uh, developments. The other global dynamic is the disruptive impact of technology. And the threat that that's having, uh, uh, that people are experiencing it as, to entire industries and therefore livelihoods. I don't know if people are truly sensitive to just how profound this explosion of technology, which for many of us feels like an easing of life or maybe an intrusion on our vacations, uh, how disruptive that truly is for so many communities whose uh, livelihoods they feel are now threatened by the disruption of, of the industries in which they, they've worked. Talk to taxi drivers, talk to you know, any, any number of, talk to your university president about the challenges. You, I mean, it's, it's incredibly challenging and, and, and difficult. And so when you look at all those dynamics, again, none of those dynamics, including those two global dynamics, can be handled by any one government. They can't even be handled by a subset of governments. These require major multilateral mobilization. They require the engagement of both people and governments. Governments are struggling, and behind closed doors, a lot of them will acknowledge it to you up front. We had the national security advisor of a major African nation tell a colleague of mine that when there's a terrorist attack from a group that's been um, persistently attacking uh, civilian populations, that when there's this attack, uh, he only has one button to push. And he said, I know that if I push that button, which is to send in the military and bang heads and stabilize, I know that I'll get short-term stability. I also know that I'm gonna have longer-term problems. Um, I need more buttons to push. He said he needs more buttons to push. And that essentially is what Search for Common Ground and other uh, peace-building organizations try to do, is to create more buttons to push. And one of the things that I would really like to stress tonight is that there are things that governments can do, buttons that they can push, and there are things that uh, individuals can do. Um, and before I get to that, uh, I want to bring this home to the states a, a little bit more. Because these dynamics are not only playing out in war and peace internationally. I think if you look at what's going on domestically within this country, it's very troubling indeed. You look at, when we look at societies we, and, and their stability or fragility, we look at uh, cohesion along two axes. We look at uh, horizontal cohesion. So what are the state of relationships, trust, respect, cooperation between different demographics? across the races, across the ethnic groups, across the religious communities, however a society separates itself demographically. What's the state of those relationships, trust, and collaboration, right? We also look at vertical cohesion. We look at the state of trust and relationships between citizens and the institutions that are meant to govern and serve them. Um, the law enforcement, uh, the judicial system, uh, the media. Um, if you look at the states right now, if you look at the Southern Poverty Law Center statistics on the, as the escalated uh, memberships in, in uh, hate groups um, over the last 20 years, uh, if you look at the fact that Americans' trust in virtually every institu institution other than the military is at historically low levels, 
we have some serious problems here to deal with in terms of how we deal with our own differences. And things can get substantially worse. I'm very troubled by the prospect of this country becoming essentially ungovernable. Over the last 15 years, we haven't seen a major initiative domestically go forward unless it was done by executive order or it was pushed through when one of the political parties had, for the briefest of moments, all the levers of power at their disposal. We have been able to do almost nothing when the parties have shared power, you know. I went on a, a weekend away with my, my wife on our 10-year anniversary, and we hadn't been away from the kids a lot at that point, and so, you know, it was like, woohoo, it was great, and, uh, uh, we woke up on Saturday morning at 6 a.m. because that's what you do when you have kids, even if they're not there, you're just on that clock, and we didn't know what to do with ourselves. So we went to a coffee shop, and this is in upstate New York, and we, I was flipping through the free newspapers, and I was stunned to look at this free newspaper that was dedicated to the sheriff and how the sheriff is the last great bastion of democracy because the sheriff is the, the uh, highest-ranking law enforcement officer that's still elected, right? So fine. Um, but what it was really dedicated to were all these letters from sheriffs who had written in from all across this country talking about the federal laws that they refused to enforce because of this overreaching tyrannical federal government. The land use laws, the water laws, gun related laws, uh, incredibly troubling as I read this. And it's not just in one direction. We see now um, after President Trump's election, uh, active subversion, people in the bureaucracy who were sticking uh, things in the works to try and grind things to a halt. And I don't care where your politics are, if we get to the point where state's attorneys general, where the staff and the major bureaucracies that govern this country, where law enforcement officials get to start deciding, well, I don't really like who's in the White House right now, so this is going to be my mode of resistance, this country is going to become ungovernable. And these are seriously troubling dynamics that I think we have to address, even if we're not at the stage of Central African Republic or Yemen. So what can governments do and what can people do, right? Um, the first thing is that governments can engage much more with one another and with civil society to figure out how we're going to manage the modern manifestations of conflict. There has to be reform of those institutions that, was, that were established after World War II and or the creation of new mechanisms to foster the kind of cooperation that we need. And we have to learn the lessons of what hasn't gone right the first time. You can't have an international institution that has legitimacy, but where all the power really sits in a, in a set of, of permanent Security Council members, um, you know, all of whom are Northern Hemisphere countries, uh, four out of five of which are predominantly white countries, you, it, it, doesn't, it, it doesn't fit with the reality of the demographics of the world, and it, and it drains the institution of its legitimacy. You also have to be able to demonstrate that when you create these mechanisms to enable international cooperation across a number of different countries and societies, that there have to be mechanisms by which people understand and can see their voice and their feedback reflected in those institutions. You know, this is an issue of deep debate within the European Union now after the Brexit vote. Because whatever you want to say about votes and the people, you know, you can paint everybody who voted for Brexit as being, you know, reductivist or whatever. I talked to a number of people, including supporters of ours, very generous, very worldly, very educated, who say, look, th this became in our eyes an institution totally disconnected from us, making decisions that were directly impacting our lives, in which we had no say, and we didn't feel like anyone was accountable, and we finally said, enough. Um, again, I don't care where you are politically, but this is a genuine issue. We need to develop institutions that can enable massive cooperation and yet still give people the, the experience and the reality of having a say in what those institutions are doing, especially if their lives are going to be affected by the decisions that are being made. The second thing that governments need to do is to invest before crises. It, the austerity push right now in this country and elsewhere, in part driven by uh, a feeling that the the cost of the refugee crisis has become obscene. The cost of the refugee crisis is obscene. The refugee crisis is obscene itself. And what you see when there is this uh, escalation, sudden escalation in military and humanitarian costs, what you might call the bullets and band-aids approach, that is a reflection of one thing, our inability to deal effectively with problems. 
you know, these problems that could have been resolved or could have been prevented or could have at least mitigated the damage and the suffering. And now we are throwing weapons and having to put massive amounts of, of funding into humanitarian aid and dealing with these, the refugee crises that, crises that have uh, evolved as a result. We need to be able to make longer-term investments earlier on to prevent these crises, to help stabilize societies, and to consolidate when positive things do happen. I talked about Nigeria, Colombia, Myanmar. There's no reason that any one or all three of those states could not become the next South Korea, emerging from uh, decades of violence to become a top 10 trading partner uh, and a stable society. But in order for that to happen, we can't be gearing up constantly for possible war, possible, you know, it, it, there has to be some visionary leadership that will invest and see through what is going to be required for those societies to fully stabilize and consolidate the peace that they're struggling to consolidate. Now, the recent cuts announced you know, this week or, or, or proposed this week uh, in, in, in the U.S. Uh, federal budget for international development, which makes up less than 1% of our overall budget, um, would seem to go directly against what I'm proposing here. Um, and I, I just want to be very clear. It is not my view um, that uh, these investments that, are, that would be made, increase military spending and reduce State Department spending and reduce spending in all these other areas, that yes, these would produce greater um, uh, results for stability and security, but it's not worth it. No, no, no. Uh, these, those kinds of investments will not create greater security and stability. Um, and the people who tend to know this best tend to be uh, the military, who oftentimes are the first to make the strongest case uh, that if you want to prevent violence and help consolidate peace, they can't do it. They, they shouldn't be asked to do it. Um, they don't have the capabilities to do it. Uh, diplomats need to do that. Civil society needs to do that. You know, community activists need to do that from those communities and from the rest of the world supporting them. Final thing that governments can do is can make space for citizen activism. Because militaries cannot secure everything, it's simply impossible. You need to enable space for communities, for civil society organizations and activists to, to mobilize and support these efforts. Look at the area of violent extremism, which is one of the policy areas that's gotten the most attention and had the most resources put into it in recent uh, years, countering violent extremism. Um, never mind the fact that if we're trying to gauge relative dangers uh, and damage, uh, you're m more likely to be killed by white-ring extremists than by terrorism from the Muslim world. Um, never mind that. If you decide that, no, we still want to focus on this because it has a particularly um, uh, uh, globally destabilizing impact, whatever, however you want to uh, uh, focus on it, then the question is, okay, well, what works? Now, our teams on the ground all over Sub-Saharan Africa, the Middle East and North Africa, uh, South and Southeast Asia, have had substantial experience in this space. Uh, we are the only organization, I believe, allowed to work in the Moroccan prison system. Um, we work extensively with prisoners convicted of uh, extremism or terrorism in Indonesia who are getting ready to, to, uh, to, to finish their terms and try to reintegrate into their communities. We work with the parole office. We work with the local communities. Um, we work substantially with young people at the risk of recruitment. We work with religious leaders in Kyrgyzstan and with the security agencies. We facilitated the first real dialogues between them where they had a chance to, frankly, bring out some of the mutual suspicion that they had and begin cooperating with one another to try to reduce uh, the threat of radicalization. And there are a few things that we absolutely know about this. And uh, I can tell you that when we've briefed people at the highest levels of policymaking at the European Union, uh, at the British government, the Canadian government, the US State Department, um, people get this, particularly people who have uh, experience on the ground. Um, religion is not the issue. Um, it's not to say that uh, ISIS 
does not make appeal to real theology. They absolutely do. They do more so than Al-Qaeda and a lot of the predecessors did, which were much more political opposition movements. Yes, ISIS makes direct reference to theology. They make direct reference to highly emotive uh, symbols in Islamic history, like reestablishing the caliphate. They do that. It's really quite powerful. Um, what we find is that young people who get attracted to this kind of thing are not people who are searching for uh, religion or looking for the right, the right Islam and they're looking at different options and ISIS, oh, that one sounds like the convincing one. No, oftentimes it's people who have very little religious grounding um, and are looking for uh, a lot of other things. They're looking for affiliation. They're looking for meaning. They want to go on a heroic journey. Uh, they have grievances. Uh, the grievances could be everything from political grievances because they're seeing people being bombed and they think it's unfair to they're being bullied in school. We, it's so situation specific that the only way to prevent the recruitment of young people into movements like this is to really be on the ground in the communities where they are, understanding what's going on with them, and then offering alternative pathways for them to get whatever it is they think they might get out of ISIS. It could be affiliation with a different group. It might be a way for them to get engaged in political activism and actually be heard for the first time in their lives. It might be any number of things. The, what works in that space is directly drawn from what we know works when you're dealing with recruitment into cults, gangs, cartels. This is, there, a lot of this stuff is not actually that new and we know how to deal with it. That's on the preventing recruitment side. On the supporting reintegration, people who have been accused, they're in prison, they're gonna come out. A lot of the work that we do is it's really soft stuff and it's rarely religious instruction. It's working on self-esteem life plans, what do they want to be? Their fears that they're not going to be accepted back in their community, their own community's fears of them, helping to bring them back together, helping to support them through that, that process of reintegration. The third area where we work in, in this space of violent extremism is helping states to shape better policies, to understand in Kyrgyzstan, for instance, that the religious leadership was not cooperating with the state, not because the religious leadership was radical, but because they didn't trust a state that they felt was infiltrating the mosques, seeing them as part of the problem, and had no relationship with them. And meanwhile, the police forces in Kyrgyzstan were frustrated to no end that they were getting no cooperation from the religious communities in dealing with radicalization, the threat of radicalization. Once the police forces, the security services, and the ulama council, the, the religious leadership council, began meeting with one another and talking, they came up with extraordinary, very practical things to do. I talked to a police captain there who started the process of uh, going to um, iftar dinners uh, over Ramadan, the breakfast meals, throughout that month. They would go to the ethnic Uzbek community, which was the community they were most concerned about, and it was the community with which they had the, the least amount of trust because there are very few ethnic Uzbeks on the police force. Um, so they would go to break bread with them, introduce themselves, establish relationships. They would do that over Ramadan. And they found that that already started developing almost a community policing type relationship where there's a lot more trust now and free flow of information back and forth. Meanwhile, the religious leaders understood, I talked to the deputy grand mufti, understood that actually this was really an issue and, and he developed um, a training uh, curriculum for uh, religious leaders on how to spot, identify, and deal with alienated young people, at-risk young people. These are very practical things that emerged as a result of them beginning to talk to one, or one another, letting down their guard. Um, it was critical that the state be involved, but it was equally critical that the religious community be involved. Governments can't do this stuff alone. And fourth and finally, we amplify constructive narratives. Um, and in this space, counter-narratives is a different thing from constructive narratives. Counter-narratives is allowing an extremist movement to set the agenda and then going into a tit-for-tat debate uh, over the, the airwaves with them or social media on what's true and what's not. One thing that we know with absolute certainty is that facts don't do a whole lot to change people's attitudes or behaviors. Um, if you give the same statistic to two people who believe two totally opposite things, who have opposing worldviews, they will immediately, each of them, interpret and assimilate that statistic or fact into what they already believe. It's stunning sort of how fast that happens. My wife is a researcher. She's been looking at the rise of radical uh, right-wing extremism in Germany. She saw how, for instance, teachers in school would, would talk to um, it would say, in an effort to sort of counter the right wing, they would say, hey, look, 
You know, immigrants are a really important part of German society. They, look how much they contribute to the, the social safety net. You know, it's, it's increasing over the last 20 years, an increasing amount, really critical. My wife would interview these kids right after in a separate room, and the ones who were from immigrant families or were supportive of immigrants would say, yeah, that's right, that's great. And the ones who were in the right-wing scene would say, my goodness, they're taking over the country. You know, we're going to be on reservations just like the Native Americans are. Um, and this happens all the time. What changes attitudes and behaviors is not factual argumentation. It's emotional experiences every time. It's having the emotional experience of primarily of being heard and respected. We facilitate these virtual dialogues supported in part by the J. Christopher Stevens Virtual Exchange Fund where we essentially enable um, university students across the US and Western Europe to engage in facilitated dialogue online with their peers in Muslim-majority countries. And they do it in, in small groups, like a small honor seminar type, like the, the video conferencing platform is just six to 10 people. You can see each other sitting around a, a square box, and, and that box is a, is a shared text message site where people can be messaging each other. And, and um, as these facilitated dialogues go forward, we have a, a research partnership with the MIT Neuroscience Lab doing really cutting-edge work and looking at what's the impact on cross-cultural empathy on cross-cultural communication skills, for instance, of, of these dialogues. And one thing that we found, that the neuroscientists found, which completely confirmed what our facilitators were experiencing, is that the, the, um, uh, the most important thing, that the threshold that people need to pass through in order to become more constructive in their engagement with difference, the threshold they need to pass through, is not being agreed with by the other side. We have young people every semester who will say, for instance, um, I don't think that terrorism is a fringe phenomenon in your community. I think your religion is violent. And we will have other people who will say, I don't think the September 11th attacks really happened the way it's reported. I think the US government organized them. And these are attitudes that are actually fairly mainstream within these different communities, but they rarely get voiced, especially with the very communities that they're talking about. And that's the whole purpose of these virtual exchanges. It's not to um, facilitate easy conversations. It's to help young people have difficult conversations well. And so what we found is when this thing gets voiced, um, uh, it doesn't matter that no one else in the room might agree with somebody. Um, they can all disagree with, with him or her. But if they do one thing, the, the person's, the speaker's whole demeanor changes and their attitude and behavior changes. And that one thing is listen with respect. Um, if people have the experience of being heard and respected, it's ex especially when they're not expecting to, they're expecting to get shut down for saying something. And uh, the, the, the response is, wow, I totally disagree with you, but I, I really, I want to understand where, where are you coming from? Why do you think that? Did you have, have you had personal experiences that give you, that lead you to think this way? I, I genuinely want to understand. And they go back and forth in this way. They try to understand where one another is coming from. Um, after those kinds of interactions, the students' whole demeanor changes. They become much more curious. They ask more questions of their peers. They actually become much more open to self-critical thought to the possibility that, yeah, maybe my community is contributing something to this overall negative global dynamic. Um, so a critical question for all of us, and it's frankly not one that governments have the capacity to deal with, is what can we do to scale up the very real experience, not just marketing, but the real experience for people of being heard and respected? You know, the nice thing about uh, giving people respect is it really doesn't cost you anything. Um, and it doesn't even force you to compromise what you believe in. It just positions you in a stance vis-a-vis -vis others of respecting them and respecting their dignity. So most of that stuff, you know, there, there's some things that governments can do. There are a lot of things that governments can't do. What can people do other than genuine uh, uh, showing respect? Einstein said, you know, we can't solve today's problems at the same mindset or level of thinking uh, that created them, right? Uh, well, violence is just the most obvious and obscene manifestation of a mindset, an adversarial mindset, where the best way to make myself safe is to arm myself against you. The best way to regain my dignity when you harm me is to sue you. Uh, the best way for me to win is for you to lose. 
Now, I'd like to encourage people to just reflect, and particularly, you know, maybe within the context of the politics in this country right now, because I know very few people who are ambiguous right now. There are people are feeling pretty strong. Um, and so I'd like people to, to just think about there are two different approaches to social change. Um, one is the adversarial approach, where you take the issue you care about, take an issue that makes your blood boil, you know, and you identify who's on your side, you identify who your adversaries are, and you go to war with them, literally or figuratively. You undercut their arguments, maybe even you try to demean their own credibility so their whole argument has no, no, uh, holds no water. Um, you basically go into a, a win-lose uh, attack mode. That's how a lot of our politics right now is conducted. Uh, that's how our adversarial court system essentially works. It's not about finding the truth. Um, um, that's how our lobbying is done. That's how our debates are done. We score points against one another, and, um, and what we play again and again are the best zingers. They have maybe nothing to do with the content of policy, but boom, you got them, you know? And so this is uh, an adversarial approach to driving change. The other approach to driving change is a collaborative approach. It starts from the very same premise. You take an issue you care about, the issue that makes your blood boil. You identify, though, everybody who has a stake in how that issue is going to play out. You identify all the stakeholders, especially the people who disagree with you. And then you commit that you're going to find a way to get into a relationship with those people so that you can find a solution to that issue that respects their dignity, meets their interests, and also advances your own. And it sounds really complicated. It's not. Families do it all the time even dysfunctional families, which we all have. Um, the, the bottom line is, is your relationship with that person as important to you as the cause that you're advancing? If I have an argument with my wife, there will be times where I'll say, I know I'm right about this one, but I'm just, the relationship's more important to me. Uh, honey, you're right, and, um, and that's good enough. Um, um, but that's not the model I'm talking about where you just walk away. I'm talking about considering the dignity of your adversary to be, and protecting that dignity to be as important to you as whatever the cause is that you want to advance, and engaging in your advocacy and your activism in a way that can uphold both. The most outspoken among us tend to be the people who are the most adversarial. You can go into any chat room, newspaper article, blog, whatever it is, and you see how, how the most extreme voices tend to dominate quickly. So I'd like to end by encouraging people to just maybe take three steps inwardly and three steps outwardly, um, because in my view, this ties directly to the state of global peace building. Not in some ephemeral or philosophical way, but directly. Again, because governments, it's not that they won't do it, some of them won't do it. They can't, they don't have the capacity to do this by themselves. They're necessary, but insufficient. I'd encourage people to, to think, if they're going to engage in this way, first to get clear and settled on what you're willing to do and what you're not willing to do in order to advance your cause. Get clear on that in your own mindset. Ideally, opt for that non-adversarial collaborative approach. Uh, then surround yourself, or at least with a few people, who are going to support you in that. Because in today's environment, uh, there are too many people who are going to define us by what we're against. And I have too many friends board members and others I know who have reached across dividing lines and the biggest resistance they've gotten is from their own so-called friends who have called them traitors. You know, how could you, I have a, for those of you who've seen the film Armor of Light, uh, it's about the um, evangelical pastor um, who um, has really embraced the cause of, of gun control and he's getting a lot of blowback from that. Well, the filmmaker uh, is a board member of mine, Abigail Disney, and uh, I know for a fact Abby had a lot of hesitation and even reaching out to this pastor. Um, why? Because he's one of the staunchest anti-abortion activists in the country. He once held a dead fetus in his hand as he led a march. And that just, she couldn't even, she, she had to force herself to get in the room with him. They're now very close friends. They totally disagree on abortion. They're working together on gun control. They have deep, meaningful conversations on a whole other range of issues. And it's really powerful what kind of a relationship they now have. One of genuine respect, principal disagreement, and cooperation where uh, they overlap. And any one of us can actually do that. Um, so the third thing I'd like to encourage people to do, this is all internal, you know, uh, choose the collaborative approach, gather that support network around you so you don't lose all your friends when you decide to do this. And the third is to recognize that aggression 
almost always comes out of insecurity. And I know that's really easy for me to say, and if you're Jewish and the swastika was painted on your wall, uh, or your, I mean, some of the stuff that's going on now in this country is so disturbing. So I, I don't want to tell anyone how they should feel about these things. Um, but I do want to say that we have seen uh, time and again that, that the stronger the aggression, almost always, the deeper the insecurity. Um, and that's where hateful language comes from. That's where hateful acts come from. Uh, Deep-seated fears and insecurities that oftentimes the actor themselves does, doesn't even realize are there. And the reason I say to consider that is because uh, you can then recognize it in yourself when that aggression and anger wells up and try to check it. And you can also not overreact to it when it comes from others. There's nothing more powerful than meeting somebody's attack on you with a calm, respectful uh, refusal to, raise to the, rise to the bait. So those are all internal things. And then the three actions I'd like to encourage people to, to take is... Uh, engage across uh, that dividing line with a uh, perspective of wanting to first understand. Listen to understand. Not listen to identify all the weak points in their argument so you can undercut them. Not listen to learn something about them that you can then use later against them to delegitimize them. Listen to genuinely understand, which usually means asking why a lot. Um, you can realize in that the power of granting respect. You can recognize that facts are not gonna help. Emotional connections is what helps. Um, and when you realize that, you probably realize the scariest part of this for a lot of people, which is that not just might the other person change, but actually that interaction, that relationship might also change you. And I think that's where actually people are most insecure, and that's why friends of theirs are oftentimes so hesitant to let them go out and reach across those dividing lines. The second thing to do in those interactions, for those who've been trained in mediation, you know this, this is one of the first things you learn, is try to move past positions and get to interests. Positions are always stated in real clear terms. You're pro this, you're anti this. Pro-life, pro-choice, um, gun control, anti-gun control, for gun control. Um, positions are defined in order to have no overlap because the whole purpose of articulating the positions is to show their contrast. And if you stay at the level of positions, you're never gonna find common ground. But when you start asking why somebody holds a position and you understand the experiences they've had, you understand the fears that they have, the hopes that they have, what uh, anxieties they have, um, then there's a lot of overlap because there are always multiple interests behind those positions, right? It's a very basic thing. Um, and you get to that overlap in interests by trying to dig behind the positions that people have. And you usually get there by asking why. And then third and finally, as my board member Abby and Reverend Schenk are doing now, consider cooperating on whatever area of common ground you all find. And the reason is because that cooperation deepens relationships, and the deepening of that relationship uh, opens up further areas of cooperation. And this is the dynamic that we see in war zones, in families, and everything in between. And that's why our organization does not focus on trying to generate compromise uh, or simply end conflict. Our organization focuses on trying to generate out of conflict cooperation because we understand that's what starts the virtuous cycle within which a community can really transform the way it deals with its differences. And I think if you do this, you're going to be surprised often and taken aback by how the humanity of someone you might have caricatured before comes through. I'd like to end by thanking you for letting me speak to you, but also to encourage you, especially those of you at this institution who I believe already hold so many of these, these, these values and insights within yourselves and how you how you treat each other here, to consider being much more assertive, vocal, I won't say aggressive, but certainly proactive, encountering this notion that strength is reflected by arms and the willingness to use them, that peace is somehow fringy, ineffective, idealistic, um, and not practical. Peace is practical, it's possible, and it's powerful, okay? And thank you very much.